This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Uh, Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And then we have a quiz at the end. So we know that it has been a couple of weeks since we've been here. We, we took a vacation week last week, which was very nice for us. But that doesn't mean that we ignored the shows or anything like that. Uh, we're going to quickly talk about uh, the week of December 30th. Just kind of go through results and things like that in case... Uh, in case anybody didn't get to see the episodes or um, has forgotten where we are. And, of course, we know right now happening is the greatest of all time tournament. It's so good. And for all of you just salivating for our take and our analysis and everything, don't you worry, we will not be talking about that on this episode. <laughs> we'll get to it eventually. We're going to uh, we're going to have some um, bonus content uh, available after the Greatest of All Time tournament concludes. Which, at this point, we know is not this week. Yeah, so the Greatest of All Time tournament aired uh, Tuesday through Thursday, uh, January 7 through 9. It's going to continue until... One of the three contestants, uh, those are Brad Rutter, Ken Jennings, and James Holtzauer, until one of the three of them has won three matches, with one match being a two-game total point affair. Um, so at this point, Ken has two wins, and James Holtzauer has one. Brad Rutter still has zero, but who knows what will happen next week. We know for sure there's going to have to be one more episode. Um, if Ken Jennings takes it, then the whole thing wraps up. But if not, then we continue. That's right. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wait for everything to wrap up before we, before we do that. That's right. And uh, so last week we went in with Karen Farrell as our uh, two-day champion. Uh, went into Monday, and we came out on Friday, January 3rd, with Karen Farrell still the champion. Uh, so great, long winning streak from Karen. Uh, against some, some strong competitors, she faced Eileen and Scott on Monday. Yeah, from Denver. Woo. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. That game was a runaway, so very strong performance from Karen. Uh, the next day, uh, she was up against Bill Coulter from San Francisco and Susan Stoltzfus from Seattle. And uh, that's, the, that's the last one that I've caught up on on my DVR. So after this, I, I'm just reading names. I, I'm looking forward to watching those episodes. Monday and Tuesday were both lock games for Karen. So, uh, you know, she's showing dominance on the buzzer. And that's, that's usually what uh, causes lock games. Right. Because like we've talked about, most of the material, more than one contestant is going to know, mm -hmm. right? Everyone takes the same test and has a lot of the same knowledge, but the buzzer dominance is usually what, what uh, turns into those routes. Right. Yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is very true. I really admired Bill's daily double three on this. He wasn't able to pull the correct response, um, but he, he was... Uh, trailing with um, 6,000 to Karen's 18,000 um, and found the last daily double at clue 27 and uh, 
really went for it, swung for the fences, uh, wagered 5,900. He was not able to um, correctly respond. The clue was in 2002, as the first woman to chair the conservative party, she pushed the Tories away from being the nasty party. And that was Theresa May. He didn't get it, but, uh, you know, gutsy move to try and get back in there and have a chance. And I think he left 100 on the, he left 100 didn't wager everything because I'm guessing he wanted to be able to participate in Final Jeopardy, even if it was a lock game. If you have a zero going into Final Jeopardy, you don't have anything to wager, so you uh, leave your podium. Yeah. Um, so. And you go and you just go and sit off stage and and wait. Yeah. <laughs> and then for the credits, they bring you back on stage so that you can shake Alex's hand and and talk. Yeah. Um, folks who have ended up there sort of jokingly refer to it as the chair of shame, although, I don't know, no shame in getting on Jeopardy. Right. Yeah. There's a lot you can't control when you're up there. Yeah. Uh, she faced Shane Hopkin and Val Marsden Fitzhugh uh, from Chicago and New York, respectively, on Wednesday. Had a substantial lead going into final, although this time not a lot game. Right. Yeah. yeah, Val was at 10,200, Shane at 6,200, and Karen was at 16,800. So clearly good position to be able to bet from, but uh, not a lot game. Yeah. But um, she did end up winning. <laughs> yes. She was up against Britt Hussman, a law student from Oakland, California, and Kevin Hendricks, a hospital IT analyst from Columbus, Ohio, on Thursday. And this was another, another game where Karen was pretty much in the lead the whole time it still was not a lock game though uh she went into final jeopardy with 18,200 and Britt uh kept it kept it reachable with 10,400 mm-hmm. uh Kevin alas he he was he was doing all right they were all actually pretty even they were pretty close going into double jeopardy mm-hmm. And Kevin was in third place, but not terribly far behind. Uh, and so he found Daily Double, the, the first Daily Double of the round, on clue one. And he bet it all. He bet 2400 on Daily Double Oh yeah, that, that is all two. of it, yeah. Um, I was looking at wait, the wrong no, he had, he had 3000 so he bet almost everything. But then, I, it looks like he bet it all. Um, I can't quite read the graph. Uh, perfectly, um, but it looks like he bet it all on Daily Double 3. So he found both Daily Doubles in, in Double Jeopardy. Oh, you're right. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. No, um, you're absolutely right. In pretty quick succession. Um, uh, but he tried to make a big move on Daily Double 3 um, and mm-hmm. unfortunately lost it all, dropped to zero. Yep, I mean, which this was Thursday's game. So Kevin had at least watched karen win three games before the lunch break in pretty convincing fashion and i mean it's a smart move if you if you're seeing someone really dominate and then you're lucky enough to find a daily double you don't want to make a wager where you almost catch up to them right like you don't want to assume like oh like i'll almost catch up and then i'll just all of a sudden get much better on the buzzer than them and no more things you know like you have to assume that they're going to keep performing the way they've been performing and take your lucky break uh, of, of being the person to uncover that daily double. You know, you can't, you can't assume that you're going to all of a sudden um, start out buzzing them on stuff. Yeah. Uh, so right wager, but didn't go his way, I think. Yep. Yep. Agreed. So Karen ends up winning that uh, game as well. Another 20,000. She's, she's averaging 
uh, just a little under 20,000 every game. Uh, so she's a, she's just very consistent mm-hmm. throughout all the games. Yep. Not brash, not not a huge better, but, you know, and a pretty reserved demeanor, um, but just very consistent and yep. prepared. Yep. On Friday, she was up against Shayna O'Neill from Columbia, Maryland, and Matt Gargano from Staten Island, New York. And we had another first pick double jeopardy daily double find, but she just really took off in double double jeopardy um she was in the lead but you know they were they were reasonably close through the first round but then, yeah but but then she just she just couldn't be stopped she she just beat him on the buzzer it seemed mm-hmm. like or it potentially she was the only one to know the answers but we'll never know Yeah, we'll never know uh yeah that game she just destroyed double jeopardy we did have uh, a category in the single Jeopardy round called podcasts, Ooh. which I I saw a lot of people with <gasps> you know who, who also do podcasts. They were celebrating that Jeopardy had now legitimized their you know their livelihood. So yeah, I saw I saw Rishikesh Hirway freaking out on Twitter about um, his podcast Song Exploder being mm-hmm. a clue. I see. Uh, buffering the vampire slayer on there which i have not listened to all of it but it's, it's you know that's uh those are two of my interests podcasts and buffy um yeah yeah so i mean we were we were just getting started when these episodes taped so i'm willing to accept them overlooking us at that point well they didn't uh, reveal next... the 400 dollars clue so presumably that was our podcast you're right. You know it must have been because it would be obvious to people who watch the show, since everyone who watches the show listens to us. Yeah. So it would be a lower dollar amount. You're right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So Karen goes in uh, to fi- Final Jeopardy with another lock, and uh, gets us to a seven-day total of one hundred thirty-nine thousand eight hundred three dollars. Which at this point, listeners, I know you really care about my overall standings. At this point, she is still behind me. Uh, because we were at this point we're both seven day champions but i had more money in winnings mm-hmm. by about uh six thousand dollars uh and that brings us to monday of this week monday january 6th so we have Kristen carter an attorney from fort lauderdale florida saeed akhtar a student from fairfax virginia and karen farrell a political consultant from woodbridge virginia whose seven-day cash winnings total $139,803. Do you think there was a bit of rivalry between Karen and Saeed because they're both from Virginia but different parts? Were they like, uh, you know, hmm. a rivalry there? Or do you think there was camaraderie being like, ah, oh, we're both from Virginia? Oh, I mean, my green room experience was that people from the same regions sort of uh, found some found some common ground, you know, um, that that's... Uh, that was an easy way to kind of connect with folks. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Did you have? Was Was there anyone from your region in the in the green room, like in, uh, in our tape groups? I think there might not have been. Not Not really. Um, the kind of middle states here, the Great Plains and and the Mountain West, don't get a. For some reason, don't get a lot of representation on Jeopardy, or at least haven't recently. Yeah. Um, with the exception of the Denver area, I have noticed. I have noticed a number of of Denver area people. Uh, over the last few months mm-hmm. but uh when when i was there no um for the tournament of champions anaki garcia is from salt lake city so 
were on opposite sides of the Rockies, but not terribly far apart. So we were able to talk about that. Pretty much everyone else. There were three people from Atlanta in the Tournament of Champions. It was yeah. like, they were just like, oh, cool. We've got the voting block. And we're like, come on, guys. Yeah. Just kidding. They're all very great yeah. people. Um, so we get the categories, all the right movies with all in quotation marks. Uh, Statue of No Limitations. Potpourri. Which I think we thought Which was retired, but I, I guess... I was sure was gone. And then we saw it here, and little spoiler, it also came up in the Greatest of All Time tournament. Indeed, like, twice in the same week. Indeed it is. I, you know, I need some Roman numeral math in that tournament before uh, before it ends. I am shocked that they did not put Roman numeral math into the first three games to make sure we would get it. All right, but we're not talking anyway. about the greatest of all time. <laughs> yeah, we'll tournament. talk about that later. Um, Tales of the City. Uh, Alex notes they will give you the tale and you identify the city. Shut up is category number five. And then the final category is and deal the carbs. Carbs like carbohydrates, not cards with a D. And Karen... Pretty, pretty consistently goes daily double hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she likes to start at the 600 or the middle clue and work down. And so we, you know, we don't see any of the top two rows until almost halfway through the round. Yeah. Uh, so she, she starts in the Tales of the City category at the $600 level, moves down to $800, uh, and then finds the daily double uh, at the $1,000 level. So this is clue number three. Karen has 800 uh, because she had gotten the the one right before that, and she wagers one thousand, which is the maximum. Um, and the clue is Anna Karenina. These two cities about four hundred miles apart, and Karen just can't come up with both. Uh, so she she gets Saint Petersburg, but she runs out of time and and doesn't also come up with Moscow. Mm-hmm. So she ends up in the red. Oh no! Yeah. She'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Uh, I love when trivia writers ask about trivia and in the potpourri, the trivia world, rather, trivia writers mm-hmm. ask about the trivia world. In the potpourri category at the 200, we had, when this board game launched in 1981, it came with 6,000 questions. Um, and that is what is Trivial Pursuit. Yes. A game that I haven't played in years because no one will play it with me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Listeners, uh, yeah, feel free to let us know if you are also in that boat. This is a common experience, I think, for, for Jeopardy folk, is that nobody right. will play Trivial, Trivial Pursuit with us. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. I, I, yeah. Do you feel like there's not enough trivia in your life, Kyle? No, it's just like, you know, times that we want to play games that's i want that to be an option at least but any but i'm the only one who ever says it and everyone's like no and then they give me that look like you're just being a show off and i'm like no i just i I enjoy it and i want to have fun but there are plenty of other good board games out there so it's not a not a real problem yeah um i saw one of my favorite childhood books in the tales of the city category uh, $400 clue, Bright Lights, Big City, and From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Karen got that one. Uh, those are both set in New York City. Bright Lights, Big City, I'm not sure I know anything about, but uh, From the Mixed Up Files is about two kids who run away from home and are like secretly staying in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. Um, 
I remember really enjoying that one and reading it many times as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I was going to briefly mention $600 Clue and Statue of No Limitations. We have another question about the Seven Ancient Wonders. Yep. So, like, as we have mentioned, like, multiple times, that's one of those, mm-hmm. one of those, like, just memorize things that, like, if you're going to be on Jeopardy, take the, you know, take, take an hour to commit that to memory. Yeah. So, moving on to Double Jeopardy. Karen, despite that stumble on the Daily Double at the beginning... She has a commanding lead of 8,800 over Kristen's 1,600 and Saeed's 800. So she just picking up where she left off on Friday. Yep. Uh, And we get the categories The Age of Exploration, Starts and Ends with the Same Vowel, Birds in the Bible, Three Named People, Foreign Colleges and Universities, and Hip Hop Feuds, which I know plays right into alex's wheelhouse so that'll be fun yes uh so hip-hop feuds um (laughs) i feel like the writers purposely have been doing more hip-hop stuff just to really lean into that with alex yeah i mean jeopardy also i think strives to put together a show where everything is important to know not just you know the things that are considered like you know highbrow or or whatever like um, yeah like academia and that yeah. sort of thing yeah um you know and there's there's plenty of opera and ballet but i think uh i think they are yeah. they're working hard to to say you know to to uh to present a program where where the like sort of the breadth of of topics are are, are fair game sure um, yeah absolutely yeah yep uh Kristen seems to also be following the pattern that karen has set up starting in the middle of the category, mm-hmm. working your way down, then moving to another category. Because uh, she does that in the starts and ends of the same vowel category and uh, gets a gets a few in a row. So she, she makes some moves right at the start of this uh, Double Jeopardy round. And we find Daily Double number two in the Age of Exploration category. Uh, it is at the $1,200 level. Karen finds it. And the clue is stories of cannibals and courtesans. Kublai Khan and Prester John abound in this explorer's circa 1300, quote, travels. That's the title. Uh, And she correctly identifies who is Marco Polo, Mm -hmm. and she wagered 2000 on it. So like you said, not not big, risky bets from Karen, but she does get that correct, and that, uh, you know, helps her extend her lead. Mm-hmm. She also finds Daily Double 3 um, at clue number 15, so there's still plenty of time at this point in the round. It's in the three named people category at the $2,000 level. She wagers 3000 The clue is this inventor was one of the founders of the National Geographic Society and succeeded his father-in-law as its president in 1898. And she correctly identifies Alexander Graham Bell. A little earlier in the round, we had a good moment where uh, Saeed picked up a rebound off of Karen in the birds in the Bible category at the $1,200 level. Uh, the clue was Harry Potter likes the passage in Job that reads, I am a brother to dragons and a companion to these birds. And uh, Karen guessed Phoenix, which is a good guess if you, uh, you know, I mean, Clearly, she knows Harry Potter. She knows phoenixes sure. are common in there. And I am a brother to dragons and a companion to these birds, right? Like, it sounds like it should be, you know, it could be a mythological bird. Sure. There. Um, Absolutely. I don't believe phoenixes appear in the Bible. 
Um, no, those so, those um, I think show up later in mythology yeah. and in other places in the world. So yeah, that's a, that's a reference to the the use of owls as sort of pets and messengers um, in Hogwarts, and Saeed got owl after Karen missed with Phoenix. I was surprised that in the three name people category, only one of the clues was an assassin because it seems like every assassin is identified by three names. Hmm. But that's just my take on it. All right, so we get to Final Jeopardy. Karen has a lock game. She's at 19,800. Kristen, so close, is at 9,600. Just, you know, just 500 more dollars and she'd be able to, to compete, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, Karen, Karen closed it out right there at the end. And we get the category 1960s novels. And the clue is this book defines its own title as, quote, concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers, dot, 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 was the process of a rational mind. And Saeed wagers only $19 and does not come up with a guess. Kristen wagers $9,599, so everything but a dollar, and guesses what is I'm okay, you're okay. Which I yeah. had, which I had not heard of until this week. Um, right, me neither. I guess we'll talk about that or not later on uh, in, a, in, a, <laughs> right. in this in this greatest of all time uh, bonus that we're that we're talking about because um, it came up there. Karen wagers zero um, from her lock position, which correct thing to do. She could have made a very small wager if she felt like it, but anything anything big would have been a mistake because uh, she would risk dropping below Kristen. Um, it, but she co- comes up with the correct answer, which is, what is Catch-22? Yeah, which was the, that was the only thing that came to mind for me. Uh, I didn't recognize the quote, but being a 1960s novel and just the idea of, like, concern for one's own safety and the mention of a rational mind mm-hmm. pointed me in that direction. Yeah. Yes, I, I guessed Catch-22, but not confidently also. Yeah. So that brings us to Tuesday. We have Lisa Warren McGrow, a homemaker and community volunteer from Austin, Texas, David Shea, a retail planner from San Francisco, California, and Karen Farrell, a political consultant from Woodbridge, Virginia, returning with eight day cash winnings of $159,603. Which now she has surpassed me. So. Mm-hmm. Bumped Sorry. down again on that list. It's all right. I'm down to number 71 or whatever. It'll be a long time before you drop out of the top 100. You know, we say that, but this season already has had like, what, three or four champions who, at least three, right? Yeah, there was Jason, I think so. there was Jennifer, and there's Karen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not like that drought that we saw in season 35. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... But we're what, like halfway through the season? If we get three That's more, true. yeah, you'll drop down to seventy-five. If we get if we if we keep going at this rate, you've got like three or four more years in the top hundred. Sure, yeah, and I will milk that for all it's worth. Yeah, Stick which with it. is pretty much nothing. But <laughs> all right, so we get the Jeopardy round. Uh, the categories are classic movies and TV, occupation etymology, anagrams, fun with zip codes, politics. And soft words. I loved the anagrams category because I love wordplay. Yeah. The the contestants did really well on it. Uh, they got all five. Mm-hmm. And it was split between uh, 
Karen and Lisa, although Lisa actually got like four of the five. So, so Lisa did really well on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun category. I liked occupation etymology too. Um, I'm uh, kind of a, kind of a word nerd. I like uh, languages and etymologies. And so uh, that was a fun one for me. Mm-hmm. We had another set of video clues, um, which I know are your favorite, Kyle, uh, in classic <laughs> movies and TV. I mean, I don't um, mind them except when they cause us to lose category or lose questions. Yeah, it's true. Um, we and there were three clues that went uncovered in the single Jeopardy round. Um, yeah. So you know those uh, those video clues take up a lot of time. Uh huh. We got daily double uh, the daily double for the single Jeopardy round at clue number five in the politics category at the six hundred dollar level. Um, Karen hit it and wagered 1600 and got the clue cities as big as LA and Dallas have this kind of mayoral election where there's no D or R after the candidates names. Um, she guessed was an independent election, um, but the correct answer was nonpartisan. So she dropped. Yep. Through the jeopardy round. This is the, uh, I think the first time that we find ourselves at the end of the jeopardy round and Karen is not in the lead. Lisa seems to either have have an edge on the buzzer or or you know these just are not categories or clues that that uh, Karen is you know that Karen knows you know mm-hmm. she's we're just not getting that anymore. We go into double jeopardy. Lisa has fifty eight hundred, Karen has twenty six hundred and David has sixteen hundred. And we get the categories African American history, fill the empty space. Uh, each correct response starts with M and ends with T. In the country, have fun storming the castle. Think it will work? And it would take a miracle, which is just a really nice, big ol' reference to The Princess Bride. Yes. Uh, we find Daily Double number two very early in the Double Jeopardy round. It's in the Fill the MT Space category uh, at the $1,600 level. Uh, Lisa hits it and wagers $3,000. Um, the clue is the name of a French soldier with a rigorous system of training gave us this word for a strict disciplinarian. And she correctly responds, what is a martinet? Which I don't think I knew that word. I didn't either. But hey, you learn something new every day. Yeah. And she did. So, yeah. you know. And yeah. And so she was already in the lead. And she just extended it even farther there. Mm-hmm. Some good play. Uh, there were some incorrect answers going on throughout the throughout the round. Uh, a couple of triple stumpers. One of, one of which kind of surprised me. The $1,200 clue in Think It Will Work, the... the clue is no this man's 1890s magnetic iron ore separator he probably chalked up its failure to perspiration now i have no idea about the magnetic iron ore perspirator or er, separator but the uh the the famous quote 99 uh, percent perspiration one percent yeah one percent inspiration. inspiration or maybe i flipped right. it but yeah yeah um, no uh is is thomas edison and so that like just that clue right there pointed it to me and i was surprised that that none of them got it you know maybe you know maybe not all of them would know it but but the fact that not even one made yeah. that connection it, it surprised me it's not a criticism of course and mm-hmm. and maybe all of them went like oh duh right after it was revealed it just right. didn't connect yeah so. yeah um 
but you do have to get into the habit of looking for those like, oh, that's a funny wording thing. What could that be pointing toward Mm -hmm. um, to do well on Jeopardy? And often it'll give you a correct response that you didn't know that sort of a featured fact, but you know, there's a, there's a hint in there that you can, that you can use. I, I wondered if they would have accepted smartphone um, in the $800 question in that category. Uh, the clue was a big yes. This described in a March 2006 patent filing as a multifunctional handheld device. Um, David responded, what is an iPhone? I think a smartphone would have been sufficient, but I don't really know. I don't think so, because I, I don't know that smartphone is a patented thing. Ooh, yeah. Um, whereas the iPhone patent was in 2006. So I think they were specifically looking for iPhone. Yeah, you're probably right. Who knows? We'll never know unless we can actually get to talking with the writers, which, hey, if any writers listen, I'd love to spend time with you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, we get the third Daily Double halfway through the round. Lisa finds it as well. She found both the Daily Doubles in the Double Jeopardy round. And at this point, she was like way ahead. She she uh, more than tripled everyone else's score when she found it. And she wanted to really just lock it out, so she wagered 4000 uh, It's in the African-American history category at the $1,600 level. The clue is when Medgar Evers was gunned down in 1963... He was the Mississippi field secretary of this national organization. And Lisa tells us that she's drawing a blank. And she guesses what is SDS, uh, but it is the NAACP. Yeah, that would have been my guess, although I started to overthink it and was like, um, oh, like Southern Christian Leadership Conference. No, that's not. Yeah. Maybe it's not national. Like, what about mm-hmm. the student nonviolent uh, SNCC? Um, anyway, yes. So uh, she drops down, but... Uh, still way in the lead still a lockout at that point um and it's nice to be you know enough in the lead that you can make a big wager that will drop you to still a lock position but not as much of a lock yeah um but the rest of the round continues and karen makes a push and is able to get within striking distance Mm -hmm. for final jeopardy just barely she has uh so we go into final jeopardy with david at four thousand eight hundred. Karen at 8,200 and Lisa at 15,600. So if Karen goes all in, she'll land at $16,400 ahead of where Lisa presently is. Um, yep. Yeah. So we get the final Jeopardy category, International Sports Stars, which... That's your wheelhouse, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those ones where, like, I, I think I had it in my head going on Jeopardy that if I, if I saw a category like that for final, I would most likely just wager zero. Um, <laughs> like, you should make a strategic wager unless you, uh, unless you are confident that you will just lose whatever amount of money you wager. Um, mm-hmm. now, there, are, there are maybe a few international sports stars questions i would be able to correctly respond to and you should keep in mind that final jeopardy is almost always somebody some something you've heard of um yep in this case uh i would not have gotten it correct i know that's really what people listen to this podcast for is to find out how i do playing along <laughs> anyway all right so we get we get the clue now with over 185 million followers he surpassed selena gomez in 2018 to become the most followed person on Instagram. David guesses 
who is Ronaldo with a $3,999 wager. And that is correct. Mm-hmm. Karen um, has wagered everything and guesses who is David Beckham. Mm-hmm. Not correct. Uh, and Lisa with a $900 wager guesses who is that soccer guy, that, which, which I think you know. is correct. <laughs> It's but not wrong. It's it's not wrong. It's not specific enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's one of those things like uh, the one who sang the the concert at the Lincoln Memorial, where she like you know she mm-hmm. she may be thinking of the correct person. Yeah, but just can't pull the name. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, three people who have never been in my kitchen. <laughs> it's not wrong. Yep. So um, so she drops down a bit, um, but with fourteen thousand seven hundred dollars, she is the new champion. And we say goodbye to Karen, but we'll see her next time we have a tournament. Yes, we will. Anyway. uh... (laughs) We move on to Wednesday. Yes. We have Sean Gold, a serial entrepreneur from Boca Raton, Florida. Rachel Klein, a program associate from Washington, D.C. And Lisa Warnmagro, a homemaker and community volunteer from Austin, Texas. And in the Jeopardy round, our categories are 1995, Business and Industry, TV Homes and Addresses, Beasts with B in quotation marks, Give Us the Imperative Verb, and Utterly Milk or Not. Lisa establishes her reign as different from Karen's by starting at the top of the category. Right, yes. And just going down, going straight down. Mm-hmm. Top to bottom in beasts, top to bottom in give us the imperative verb. And didn't deviate from that sort of one category top to bottom until they jumped away from utterly milk or not after uh, almost halfway through uh, the round. But then they did the 1995 category from bottom to top. Mm-hmm. So they, they did stick with categories. Yeah. Pretty much all the way through, so... Yeah, well, that was, I guess, Sean gets control of the board, and um, and he likes, it looks like he likes working bottom to top. Um, mm-hmm. He ran that category, actually. I don't think he yeah. got recognized for it, because they had a, I mean, they're, they're maybe not recognizing people for running categories as much anymore. Yeah, I don't um, know. And there was a commercial break in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Cap, uh, Sean ran the 1995 category yeah. going bottom to top. So good on him. Yeah. They did not find the Daily Double until almost the end of the round. Um, uh, clue number 29 in the TV homes and addresses category at the $800 level. Um, Sean found it, wagered only 400 so half of the actual value of the clue. Um, yeah. I guess he was maybe not confident in this category. Um, yeah, and he was in the middle and everyone was close, so maybe he didn't want to... Like, risk his I position, yeah. Yeah, maybe he didn't want to blow it, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Although there's, there are worse things than being in third going into Double Jeopardy, because then you get to sort of set the tone, choose where you start in terms of categories. And especially with two competitors who seem like they're inclined to stay in the category they're in, that can, that can work. Anyway, uh, he gets the clue. A lot of this sitcom took place in apartment 5A at 129 West 81st Street in Manhattan. The neighbor from 5B was a regular. Um, and he correctly responds, what is Seinfeld? Mm-hmm. So he got it. Yeah. Um, 
didn't make much of a move though. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, that's at the pretty much at the end of the the Jeopardy round. So <clears throat> we go into double Jeopardy. Lisa maintained her lead. Uh, she's at sixty two hundred. Sean is up to five thousand, and Rachel is at three thousand. Mm-hmm. And we get the categories: quoting poets, another year, another dollar. River Islands, a sparkling category, film composers, and Jeopardy in 2D. And Alex clarifies each correct response will contain the letter D twice, but not necessarily next to each other. We had a triple stumper about a show we watch uh, a fair bit in my house uh, in a sparkling category at 800. Tara Strong gives voice to Twilight Sparkle. In this animated series, uh, Lisa guesses what is rainbow bright. Uh, that's not correct. Nobody else buzzes in. That's My Little Pony. I don't know how I knew that. <laughs> Can you name any other My Little Pony characters? I can't name any My Little Pony characters except <laughs> now Twilight Sparkle. Yeah. But that was the one that came into my mind. And I was like, all right. Rainbow Dash is my daughter's favorite uh, My Little Pony. So... What I need to do is come up with an adjective that is, like, colorful, and then just a verb. And that's a My Little Pony character. Let's see. Uh, The others, I'm trying to remember the other ones' names. Pinkie Pie, Rarity, Fluttershy, and Applejack are the big ones. So I think Twilight, Sparkle, and Rainbow Dash sort of set a pattern that doesn't get followed through all the way. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Yeah. I can barely like uh, even get the get the names in my head without hearing them in my daughter's voice. She couldn't pronounce her R's when she was a big uh, My Little Pony fan. So mm-hmm. it was uh, Rainbow Das and mm-hmm. uh, Wowity. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Enough about that. <laughs> <laughs> the quoting poets category. I I actually did so much better than i thought because i I know i have talked on this podcast about how poetry is like my least favorite category i feel like it's my weakest all the time i got all of them actually nice even even the 1600 dollar clue like down to the the exact wording yes because dylan thomas was one that i studied specifically for the tournament and so i remember the wording specifically do not go gentle into that good night yes uh we had uh that was a that was a tough um double neg uh the clue is this dylan thomas title is rhymed with the wise men at their end no dark is right sean rings in and responds what is do not go gently into the good night and then lisa tries to pick up the rebound um and says what is do not go gently into that good night so sean had two minor wording errors and Lisa corrected one of the two, um, mm. so they both lose sixteen hundred. Yep. Yeah. So that was that was oof. Yeah, it felt tough. Um, yeah. And then the two thousand dollar clue was a triple stumper. Nobody even tried on. Uh, these three words precede "the center cannot hold" in Yeats's "The Second Coming," mm-hmm. uh, and the correct response is "things fall apart." Right. Uh, which is the source of the title of the novel by Chinua Achebe. Mm-hmm. Which um, also came up this week didn't it i believe it did yes or achebe did not not things fall apart Um, yeah yeah i in college i uh set that poem to music oh nice so i have a particular connection to that poem cool 
it was not very good. It was my first attempt to write vocal music, uh, and it did not go well. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. You learn. Yeah. Um, uh, We had a bunch of triple stumpers in the film composers category. I know, which bummed me out, man. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I was watching being like, oh, poor Kyle. Um, Yeah, yeah, so they got got the $400 clue, Amadeus, Tom Hulse as him, uh, and Rachel responds who is Mozart. Um, They got the $800 Oh, they no, did, they didn't. They, did not. they didn't they get the $800. Four. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, immortal Beloved, Gary Oldman as him. Uh, that's Beethoven. Um, yeah. Uh, and the 1200 they missed. Uh, DeLovely, Kevin Klein as this red, hot, and blue American. Um, yeah, so that had two two musical clues as well as the actor for the movie. You know, right. DeLovely and Red Hot and Blue. Yeah. That's... Uh, and that's Cole Porter. Mm-hmm. At 1600, we have the music lovers, Richard Chamberlain as this Russian. Um, and that's Tchaikovsky. I didn't know that one, and I don't know how you would get that if you don't know the movie. Yeah, I'm I'm not certain either for not knowing the movie, but for me, I, I don't know. I, I would still guess Tchaikovsky, but maybe that's because I'm more just more familiar with it mm-hmm. with like the world so yeah and then the two thousand dollar clue testimony ben kingsley as this soviet composer so basically if you see if you see or hear soviet composer you pretty much have two options it's either prokofiev or it's shostakovich and testimony is uh the title of the book that um is attributed to Shostakovich, which uh, details a bunch of like anti-Soviet sort of ideals and 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 like his struggles with the the Soviet um, government because mm. he he went very hot and cold from times being like the golden boy, you know Stalin's golden boy, and then becoming like considered very anti-Russian and anti-Soviet, and so he was you know facing persecution and and that kind of thing throughout his career. It kind of went back and forth, but the thing about uh, testimony is that it's it, it was published by a musicologist named Solomon Volkov mm-hmm. in 1979 and he claimed that it was Shostakovich's memoirs but that is unverified and as time has gone on since then there has become more and more questions as to the authenticity um, as to whether it's actually it was actually Shostakovich's writing or Volkov's writing and you know claiming that it was Shostakovich but it is it is kind of like the big work the big like um quote-unquote autobiographical work of Shostakovich yeah huh we hit daily double number two in the River Islands category uh at $1,600 level um at clue number 16 uh Sean finds it and wagers 1500 and he is just slightly behind Lisa at that point mm-hmm he gets the clue, this island of more than 1.5 million people is near the confluence of the Ottawa River and St. Lawrence River. And he struggles with it for a while and then eventually responds, what is nothing? I've got nothing. Um, and it's it's Montreal. Which I did not realize Montreal was an island. I did not either. And I've been there. So, oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went there when I was like seven. So I don't yeah. remember much of it. But, yep. Yeah, he, dro- he drops down uh, into third place and kind of remains there the rest of the game. 
Um, the third daily double comes at clue number 22. It's in the Jeopardy and 2D category. So again, the clue, the response has to have two Ds. Um, it's at the $2,000 level and Lisa wagers 2000 on it. Uh, she is in the lead there and probably did not want to risk dropping below the other competitors uh, with, that, with that bet. And the clue is, this ancient priestly class had mostly died out by the 400s because most Celts had become Christians. Uh, and she takes a second, but she correctly identifies who are the Druids, mm-hmm. which any good D&D player should get that. Yeah. I uh, There's a particular face I feel like I see Jeopardy contestants make when they make a conservative wager because they don't want to risk dropping below the their, uh, uh, their competition. And then um, the clue is revealed and it's like you could answer it in your sleep, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, like I made a, that face a couple times. Yeah, yeah. If you knew whether you knew the the response, like that would that would uh, sure take the fun out of wagering, um, right? And also ruin the game completely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in any case, uh, Lisa has a lock game uh, at yep. the end of the double jeopardy round uh, with thirteen thousand eight hundred to Rachel's four thousand two hundred and Sean's two thousand three hundred. So low low overall scores for yeah for a lock game especially yeah so a lot of wrong answers yeah and especially incorrect responses on the same clue Ooh, yeah right we talked about the do not go gentle in that good night um there was also in the river islands category real quick the two thousand dollar clue both rachel and sean got that incorrect so that's four thousand dollars taken out of the total score yeah um the clue was, tiny Vukovar Island in the Danube River is claimed by both of these former members of Yugoslavia, and it shows a map, so you don't even need to know the river, you just need to be able to identify the uh, the, the countries on the map. Yeah. Uh, they both correctly got Serbia, uh, but Rachel also guessed Montenegro, and Sean also guessed Albania, but the correct other one was Croatia, which I always remember, Croatia has a unique shape, and the mnemonic for me is... It starts with a C, and it's shaped like a C. Ooh, good mnemonic. Yeah. Filing so, that one away. There you go. Anyway, so this takes us to Final Jeopardy. Uh, the category is European history, and the clue is, it took the French army until 1995 to declare him innocent, 101 years after he was convicted of treason. So Sean is in third place. Uh, he gives the correct response of who is Dreyfus uh, from the Dreyfus Affair. And he wagered nothing, you know, maybe maybe hoping Rachel would bet something and miss it. And I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe he just didn't feel like it's a lock game. What's the point? Um, yeah. But he correctly identified it. Rachel wrote, who is Arnold dot 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 question mark. And I thought this was interesting. Alex was trying to figure out who she was talking about. And so he's like, Arnold Stang? Arnold Schwarzenegger? Clearly Benedict and, Arnold is who she was yeah, talking about, right? right? You right. know, the, and she knows it's traitor. wrong because, like, wrong country, you know. And um, wrong time period, right? Yeah, but, but like, he, yeah, it put her in a very is weird than spot. Writing nothing. Yeah. You know, because yeah. there, sometimes you talk yourself out of the correct response, and, like, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it's always better to write something down. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very weird moment. Yeah. Um, and she only loses $401. And then Lisa uh, guessed who is not Emil Zola, which is correct. Yep. Um, it is not Emil Zola. <laughs> it is not Emil <laughs> no, Zola. No, but she's like 
like, uh, I mean, we referenced it a few minutes ago, but, you know, like the one who sang the concert at, at the Lincoln Memorial, right? Like, she she's, you know, trying to show that she's she's thought of the correct right. incident. She just can't pull the name. And uh, she wagered 4,000, which she could, you know, still wager and not risk losing the game. Right. Even with these, her, you know, only 13,800. So, but yeah, she's our winner moving into Thursday. Yep. So we get Katie Needle, a retail supervisor from Brooklyn, New York. Claire Henner, a corporate recruiter from Chicago, Illinois. And Lisa Warren Magro, a homemaker and community volunteer from Austin, Texas, uh, returning with two-day cash winnings of 24500 So we get the Jeopardy round categories. Paradise Buy, The Dashboard Light, uh, so they're getting cute with us a little bit. Uh, fairy Tales and Folk Tales, Magazine Collection, From the Greek, and Weird Facts. Which, again, that's, that's just, just Jeopardy. Trivia. Yep. Yeah. I guess, depending on what you consider weird. Yeah. So they do go top to bottom for almost the first three categories right before the commercial break clue number 15 they break that trend but uh they they go all the way down the from the greek then they go all the way down weird facts and then they nearly go all the way down the dashboard light uh before the commercial break which again as a viewer it's fun to it's it's nice it's comfortable you know i um i can read biblical greek but some of these were some of these greek ones were a little tricky and they did pretty well with them uh, at the $600 level, a wound or the psychological damage it causes, that's trauma, um, mm-hmm. which Lisa got. At the $800 level, an absolute ruler. In ancient Greece, it was one who seized power illegally. Uh, Katie got that one. It's a tyrant. They had a triple stumper on the uh, $1,000 clue. Uh, the science of determining a tree's age by looking at its growth rings. Um, Claire guessed dendrology. So um, good work there with from greek roots um but the uh the correct answer there is uh dendrochronology right so she just left out the age part yeah we get the daily double in magazine collection at the 800 dollars clue this is at clue number 19 lisa finds it and this was more of a this was a scrappier game at least in the jeopardy round they were all hanging out pretty close to each other it was very close uh so she wagered 1600 on it uh the clue is founded in 1922 this magazine sold longer versions of its condensed articles to other magazines uh and she gets it correct with what is reader's digest and so she gets ahead of the others she she separates herself a little bit at that point so at the end of the jeopardy round we have uh lisa and claire tied for the lead at four thousand eight hundred, and uh katie trailing in third place but not by much uh with three thousand eight hundred they didn't lose much of the um the coriat value of that board right? right like that's that's pretty close to the excluding daily double wagering that's pretty close to what is available there so in double jeopardy we get the categories medical matters organizations american city with city in quotation marks so these are going to be cities that have the word city in their names 
world leaders, homophone calls, and it's the Gilgood movie of the year. Yeah, okay, so it looks like this this Gilgood guy was like a actor, director, mm -hmm. and then I think they're doing like a pun on feel-good movie of the year, which is, I think, a thing I've heard. Once again, we're, we're, we're running categories top to bottom. Mm -hmm. It's feeling good uh, for at least the first couple, and then we start to move things around a little bit, but, but they, like, they like to stick to it, so that, yep. mm -hmm. that's nice. Yeah. There's that uh, Jeopardy conundrum of when you're starting a category and you're not sure if you're supposed to give one answer or two. Um, so in the homophone calls, which is where they start, uh, they are supposed to give one because these answers are homophones. Um, so you're just repeating yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> it looks like I, I didn't get to see this one. It got preempted in my uh, in my area. Um, but it looks like for the first couple clues, they were repeating themselves just to be sure they would get the uh, get credit for the correct response. Um, mm -hmm. At the $400 level, remember A for the city that is the official seat of government in a state, O for a state legislature building, that's uh, capital and capital, Lisa gets that one. And then the $800 level, uh, a small piece of land in the sea or a theater walkway, that's uh, aisle and aisle, uh, Katie mm -hmm. gets that one. Yep, and then the $1,200 clue, a dull person can become exciting as a South African of Dutch extraction, which we know is a boar. Yep. At the 1600, a verb meaning to shrivel, or an old adverb meaning where to, that's wither. And then uh, at the 2000, breezy, or a hawk's nest, that's airy. Yeah, I like that word. Yeah. They work their way straight down through American City, and we hit daily double number two at the $2,000 level. Lisa uncovers it and wagers 2000. The clue is Midwest News. In 1886, Wyandotte changed its name to this city. Across the border, what was once Westport did the same in 1889. Lisa guesses what is Iowa City. Uh, the correct response is Kansas City, um, as in Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. We get the third daily double. At clue number 23, it is at the $1,200 level in organizations. Katie finds it. Katie is trailing Lisa at this point by a, a decent amount, about 5,000, I think. And the clue is, after stopping a carriage driver from beating his horse, Henry Berg founded the organization known by these five letters for short. And Katie correctly identifies the ASPCA, which I found out that day stands for the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm -hmm. All I knew was that it was the organization that put on really long commercials with Sarah McLaughlin singing. Mm -hmm. Sad, so. sad puppies. Sad puppies. <laughs> uh, but now we know why. <laughs> <laughs> or, or why they're trying to get you to adopt animals and treat, yeah. treat animals well. Okay. Uh, so yeah, she moves up by 3,000 um, and Katie makes a real push there that galvanizes her and she i think gets nearly all of them for the rest of the game there are only six clues left but she she cleans up the rest of the board um and that means mm -hmm. that going into 
final Jeopardy, she actually has a $2,000 lead over Lisa. Katie's at 20000 Lisa's at 18000 and Claire seems like she just couldn't get in much. Uh, she's down at 4400 We get the final Jeopardy category, Law Enforcement. And the clue is, in 1892, Francisca Rojas became the world's first person convicted on the basis of this kind of evidence. So Claire guesses what is forensic uh, with a $4,399 wager. That is incorrect. Yeah, or really probably just not specific enough. Yeah. You know? Yep. Lisa wagers zero. Uh, Great wager, Lisa. Good job. Um, uh, With what (laughs) is a fingerprint? I love a second place contestant going into final who, who knows to sort of stay stay close to where you are and hope that first will drop below you. Uh, Katie wagers 16,001. Uh, she's forced into that big wager on the chance that Lisa might double up. Yep. Um, she also correctly identifies what are fingerprints. So Katie will be our champion going into Friday. Yeah, with a big $36,000. Uh-huh. On Friday, we get Jack McGuire, a travel and tourism consultant from San Antonio, Texas. Halleck Van Houten, an environmental consultant from Los Angeles, California. And Katie Needle, a retail supervisor from Brooklyn, New York, who's coming back after one day with $36,001. So the categories are Science Around Us. Where's that church? Uh, You are given the name of the church and provide the present day country. Uh, Toys, skating into the NHL, hashtag, uh, that category is just a hashtag. I'm glad they didn't spell out hashtag, incidentally. Um, And uh, four-letter words with F in quotation marks, so those are going to be four-letter words that start with F. I did enjoy the where's that church category. I I ended up uh, getting four out of the five. Uh, Nice. Yeah, it was was really interesting. Um, There was a lot of, I don't want to say hate, but a lot of like, very righteous anger at clue number 30 the last one of the, of Ooh, the round the oh. 200 the 200 clue in where's that church built in the 300s ad the church of the nativity katie got in first and said what is palestine and was ruled incorrect yeah. um and then jack got in with uh what is israel but like factually it is palestine yeah, um, uh, and it's in the Palestinian territories. Um, yes, in Bethlehem. I've actually been to that church. Oh, nice. So, yeah. so like, really, Israel is incorrect, but uh, they must have fixed that over the break uh, because her score was changed back to forty eight hundred instead of forty six hundred. So they mm-hmm. they did not penalize her. They yeah. still did not give her credit for a correct response, mm-hmm. and they did not address it. That's tricky. I mean, it's, ugh, yeah. I, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not sure Israel is incorrect, incorrect. Like, Israel has control of the Palestinian territory. I, yeah. I, I am surprised at the writers for putting this as a $200 clue, as if this were an uncontroversial clue. Um, it, it's possible that in, I don't know, not, not to... You know, I, I know they do their research and do a lot of fact checking, but it's possible that like all, in all of their brains, they were just like, "Oh yeah, that one's in Israel," and they didn't necessarily do due diligence on it. Yeah, 
I wonder if Katie had to advocate for herself on that one. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 in the West Bank, you know. Like I, yeah, I, I was I was surprised that she was just ruled incorrect. Yeah. And uh, interesting that they did a score adjustment without addressing it on camera. That's a big can of worms. Yeah. And I I don't know what the right choice is there as far as like <clears throat> the decision maybe just makers. don't ask which country bethlehem is in i don't know yeah. you know <laughs> like, yeah just don't use that clue is really like the if, best you, if you option. don't want to get political then don't say what country is the west bank um yeah because you're yeah uh, yeah if, i mean I if they'd asked for the like city or town um mm-hmm. that would have been a different you know because you can you can answer bethlehem without having to address israel palestine as an issue anyway yeah yeah oof yeah i didn't realize until i was looking at the at the j archive notes afterwards that they had made a discrete score correction yeah there yeah there there was some some really really heated you know social media about it i missed that i'm gonna have to go back and look anyway moving on all right the daily double was at clue number 15 in the toys category um at the $600 level, Katie uncovered it. The clue was this brand of toy trucks began in Minnesota in the late 1940s. And she looked a little relieved, I thought, uh, and responded, what is Tonka? Mm-hmm. She looked to me like she had sort of familiarity, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder uh, where that came from for her. I, for whatever reason, thought immediately of the Hess truck commercial, which airs during Jeopardy! A lot of the like before Christmas in my area. Um, so. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. I'm wondering if that's just regional. Yeah, I think it. I think that might be like a regional toy, and I don't know. Now I'm hmm. gonna have the Hess truck song st- stuck in my head. Um, I never heard that, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I will not treat you to it, so that thank you. You don't suffer. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Katie with uh, a corrected score, four thousand eight hundred. Alec is at 4,400, and Jack has 2,200. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, American History, The Irishman, Book Marks, which turns out to be about people named Mark and their books, uh, Musical Instruments, Numerical Characters, um, and Before and After. And we started in the Musical Instruments category. Yes. That felt so good. (laughs) I took issue with one of the clues, okay, um, because it is it is almost too specific. Although it did give a a picture, so it was very clear to me like what what the correct response was. So the other ones are pretty straightforward. Four hundred dollar clue: the lowest sounding brass instrument is a tuba. Eight hundred: the lowest sounding string instrument is the bass. Which you could call it. There there are a number of different names. If you call it the upright bass, that's totally fine. If you call it the double bass, that's also fine. The only reason it's called a double bass is because when it was invented, people weren't writing music for it yet. So all it did was double the cello part. Oh, okay. What the cello was playing was the bass line. So it doubled the bass, which is why it's called a double bass. But really, you just call it a bass and it's fine. 1200, it's a plucky early relative of the piano. That's a harpsichord because that's how it makes this 
the sound, um, pianos, you press a key and a hammer strikes a string within the body of the instrument. Harpsichord, you press a key and it plucks a string. And you can't the control instrument. the volume, right? Because it's no just a, it's just a pluck. And so is that why piano is piano? Because piano forte, like you have mm-hmm. some control of the... Uh, yep, yep. Yeah. Because uh, you can control the dynamics uh, yeah. on, a, on a piano. Technically, a piano is called a pianoforte because it can play both piano and forte. Right, uh, piano which, being if, soft and forte being loud. If you're not, uh, if you're not a burst. classical music person at all, right. And then the sixteen hundred dollar clue is the one that I took issue with. Originally, a set of graduated bells. It's tuned steel bars struck with wooden hammers, uh, and it's the glockenspiel, and oftentimes it is referred to as bells or a bell kit um, mm. because it comes from there. But my issue with that is that it doesn't have to be played with wooden hammers. Okay. Especially the tuned steel bars. In fact, it very rarely is now. Now it's usually just played with mallets, often mm-hmm. plastic or rubber, sometimes metal. Hmm. Uh, so the the specific that it is played with wooden hammers to me is incorrect. Okay. Um, in fact, I've I've never seen it in in modern settings played with wooden hammers. But anyway, that's me. Yeah. Um, we had an incorrect response on that one. Uh, Jack guessed what is a xylophone. Um, xylophone. Xylo means wood, right? So that has. Is that mm-hmm. right? I think that's right. I'm pretty um, sure. Yeah. So that has to be. Yeah, um, wooden bars. Wooden bars, not steel. Would vibraphone have been correct for this also? No, because vibraphones were not originally a set of graduated bells. Okay. That it is sense. tuned steel bars, but. It doesn't fit the other part of the clue. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, and then I couldn't remember the name of the scraper uh, instrument oh, yeah. in the $2,000 clue. Also known as a scraper, this percussion instrument originated in Latin America. And they showed a picture and I was like, that thing, like, what is that thing from music and movement class when I was six? Um, <laughs> yep. Yep. It's uh, called a guiro. Yep. Or if sometimes I call it the fish because it's kind yes. of shaped like a fish. It is kind of shaped like a fish. Yeah. And if you don't know what it sounds like, go listen to a recording of Oye Como Va, and oh, yeah. you hear it the entire time. Yeah. We had before and after, my favorite category. Um, <laughs> uh, South African host of The Daily Show who came up with an American dictionary of the English language. That's Trevor Noah Webster. Um, I'd like to meet that person. Yeah. I enjoyed the $2,000 clue. Um, American poet of the red wheelbarrow who's also a store selling gourmet cookware. Um, that was a triple stumper to my great dismay. Uh, and that is William Carlos Williams Sonoma. Man. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's a good one, though. Yeah. I get really angry every time I think about the William Carlos Williams poem, This Is Just To Say. I probably will be stewing again all day today. <laughs> About, yeah. uh, about the narrator who maybe William Carlos Williams or maybe William Carlos Williams is uh, it, it's self-aware enough to, to realize that the, the narrator of this poem is not being very polite to his cohabitants. Um, right. I have, a, I have a number of opinions about that poem, but mostly I just get really mad. First of all, why would you keep plums in an icebox? Second of all, the imperative forgive me is not the same as an actual apology. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's enough of that from me. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> we get the first daily double of the round uh, in American history at the eight hundred dollar level. 
Katie finds it and wagers 2,000. The clue is, on October 8th, 1871, a fire started on DeCoven Street, uh, destroying more than 17,000 of this city's buildings. And of course, that is the Great Chicago Fire, mm-hmm. which he gets correct. Yep. Daily Double number three uh, comes in the bookmarks category at the $800 level. Uh, Jack finds it and the clue, uh, wagers 2,000. And the clue is, in this novel... Mark Watney says, I didn't die on Soul 6. Certainly the rest of the crew thought I did. And he guesses what is the sun also rises. You can sort of tell from his face that he knows that's not right. Uh, yeah. The correct response is The Martian, yeah. which was a really fun book. I still haven't read it. I, I really enjoyed the movie, yeah. but I need to read the book. Yeah. I only got to see a portion of the movie because my first child was a great baby to take to the movie i would wear him in a baby carrier and he would fall asleep and sleep through the entire thing and so i attempted it with my second child who was not a good baby to take to the movie and so we attempted it for about 40 minutes really annoying the people around us and then i left that's so Uh, tough yeah so i still haven't seen the rest of it and uh i apologize to whichever four people were in that theater for a matinee of the Martian on that day. I I really had every expectation that my child was about to fall asleep imminently. Yeah. And whoops. Yeah. Also, I would like to know why uh, clue number 27 is a $2,000 level clue. This was numerical characters. um, And the clue was on Star Trek Voyager, this techno species designated Jerry Ryan's character seven of nine. And it sort of stuck who is who are what is the borg yeah i think it would be Um, what is the borg yeah i think star trek is one of those i don't know it's hard to say because you know obviously all trivia is like you know it or you don't but that one you have to know the borg yeah you kind of have to know the specific of it because there's not a clue there that would be like if i don't know the borg the name the borg i'm not going to be able to figure it out from the clue you know what i mean yeah yeah fair I, I felt like it was gear it was like a relatively well known Star Trek phenomenon. You know, True. they were I'm not a huge Trekkie, but like I don't know, I was I was a Voyager fan, um, but I felt like the Borg is had sort of crossed over into wider pop culture along sure. with like Vulcan and Klingon. Yeah. Jack got that one. Oh yeah, they did they did pretty well on all of these numerical characters. Except they missed Agent 99. Oh, I love Get Smart. Oh, I, I am not familiar, actually. Oh, if yeah, if sorry. nothing else... I mean, the show is good. It's it's dated. You know, it's from the mm-hmm. 60s or whatever. But watch the movie with Steve okay. Carell and Anne Hathaway. Oh, yeah. It is so good. Okay, I will. Oh, man. <laughs> it's... Yeah. Oh. I'm adding it it's to so the good. list right now. Anyway, <laughs> we, get to, uh, we get to the uh, final Jeopardy. Katie's in the lead with 12,400. Alec uh, is at 8,800, and Jack is at 5,800. So it's still pretty much anyone's game, um, given betting strategy and all that. Yep. Uh, We get the category Constitutions of the World, and the clue, this country's 1979 constitution forbids amendments altering its official ideology or religion. This blew my mind. Because this show was taped, you know, two months ago. Yeah. And to come up this week. Mm-hmm. Incredibly cosmic. Yep. 
I had a similar reaction. And people sometimes, like, sometimes things sort of uh, line up like that and people assume that, like, Jeopardy is commenting on current events. But everything, you know, it's, they're, they're locked in. This was, this was going to be the show for January 10, you know, uh, and that was, that was set in stone. Like, they, they designate a show they're taping to a specific air date as they tape about two months in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, those clues had to be written in advance of that. Right. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Yeah. Uh, so Jack uh, wagers 5,200, so all but 600, um, and gets it correct with what is Iran. Alec wagers 3,000 and guesses what is China. Katie has it correct with 5,201. So she is our champion with $17,601. Yep. And she'll be coming back next week. Yep. All right. So that's the week. Yes. Is this a deep dive about hip-hop feuds, Kyle? Oh, no, it's not. Um, Partially because I don't... I'm not comfortable enough with my knowledge of that to really feel like I'm providing quality information. Even if I did the research, a lot of them are very current with, like, differing opinions and, like, viewpoints that I don't know Mm -hmm. that I'd be able to give a good objective dive on it. Yeah. Um, Um, I'm going to tell you, it is... It is something, it is a dive on a person who things related to this person came up more than once throughout the week. Ooh, I'm having a hard time figuring out who that could... Medgar Evers came to mind, but I don't think he came up more than once. Nope, he only came up once, which, I mean, that. in all honesty, I probably should have done that because it was an incorrect response and a pretty important event. I'd actually kind of decided already after the Monday game. So it, it, Ooh, I'll give you okay. a clue. It started in the Monday game and came up multiple All times. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. All right, I'm not sure. Who was it? Uh, we're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, nice! Yeah, so on Monday's game, in the um, Tales of the City category in the Jeopardy round, the $200 clue is Murders in the Rue Morgue. Right. Uh, and that's a tale by Edgar Allan Poe. On the Tuesday game... In the soft words category in the Jeopardy round at the $1,000 clue, it's in Pose the Raven, her whispered name is heard in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And that is Lenore. Lenore. So twice his works came up. And then there were two other times. I can't, for some reason, I, I remember there being two other times, but I can't find one of them. But somewhere related to his works were in there. On the Thursday game in the double Jeopardy round in the uh, It's the Gilgood movie of the year. Mm-hmm. This one is a bit more distantly related, but the $400 clue, it's talking about the Tempest and the character in the Tempest named Prospero, uh, and Prospero is also the name of the uh, main character in Mask of the Red Death. Right. I believe, if I remember correctly. So, like, three different things kind of all this week pointing back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So yeah. I decided that's who I'm going to go with, also because I really don't know much about him at all. At least I didn't before this. So that's what we're talking about. Nice. Uh, so here we go. He was born Edgar Poe in Boston on January 19th, 1809. He, his parents, Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe and David Poe Jr. were both actors. Uh, he had an older brother, William Henry Leonard Poe, and a younger sister named Rosalie Poe. He was born, like I said, in 1809. Just in 1810, his father abandoned their family. And in 1811, his mother died from uh, tuberculosis. Uh, At that point, he was taken into the home of John Allen, 
who uh, was a successful merchant in Richmond, Virginia, dealing in a number of different uh, commodities like tobacco, cloth, tombstones, and slaves. So really Ooh, stand up okay. to there. Um, All right. But they were the, the Allens acted as a foster family and even uh, gave their name to him so when they they took him in um, they had him baptized and they, and they named re, kind of renamed him Edgar Allan Poe uh, although he was never actually like legally or formally adopted so Poe's childhood uh, he he grew up his uh, foster mother uh, and him like got along well and had a good relationship uh, him and his father foster father uh, kind of went back and forth between uh like really good almost spoiling and being very very uh aggressive with his discipline mm. you know not uncommon of the time certainly with fathers and their sons um in 1815 the allens went to britain and uh poe went to a number of different schools uh for a little while he was in scotland and then he studied at a boarding school in chelsea and then he entered Reverend John Bransby's Manor House School mm. uh, after after that for a couple of couple more years. They went back to Richmond in 1820, uh, so he's only 11 years old at this point. Four years later, in 1824, he joined the Richmond Youth Honor Guard and was part of the celebration of the visit of the Marquis de Lafayette um, when mm. he came back to the United States and and kind of like toured and checked things out and saw how we were doing in 1825 john allen's uncle william galt died and left a huge inheritance to john allen several acres of real estate which at the time was estimated at seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is equivalent to 17 million dollars today so big big old windfall for john allen so poe's foster family very wealthy well-to-do established so in 1826, Edgar Allan Poe uh, registered at the University of Virginia to study ancient and modern languages. Uh, and a little bit before that, it is speculated that he became engaged to Sarah Elmira Royster, who was a friend of his in Richmond. Uh, but he went to university and they lost touch uh, while he was there. This was in the early years of the University of Virginia. And um, it was founded by Thomas Jefferson, who had a lot of like high ideals of the Enlightenment. They had very strict rules against gambling, horses, guns, tobacco, and alcohol. Um, but of course, as we know, college students love to follow those rules. Jefferson also had the had the idea of like giving a lot of freedom to the students, so they got to choose their courses of study, um, which is nice. Uh, they also were given freedom to determine where and how they lived, and. Uh, the onus was on them to report all wrongdoing and hold each other accountable. So there was a lot of chaos and a pretty high dropout rate from the university at that time. Like I said, he lost touch with, with Sarah Royster. And during that time, he also uh, uh, became estranged from his uh, foster father, John Allen. And it was over gambling debts. Uh, Poe claimed he, he liked to, to sell it as Allen hadn't given him uh, sufficient funds to register for classes and buy materials and and you know pay for living space but in reality it was really uh these debts that poe accrued through gambling and his his increasing dependence on alcohol and in fact alan did send additional money 
and clothes, but uh, Poe's debts increased rather than decreased when as that money arrived. After only a year, he gave up on university, but he didn't feel welcome returning to Richmond because he, he and his foster father were at loggerheads. And uh, he also found out that Sarah Royster had married um, a man named Alexander Shelton mm-hmm. during that time. So Poe didn't really have anything to return to aside from like his foster mother who he got along with, but uh, that would be hard to, to go back to. So uh, instead, he decided to move to Boston, uh, which was where he was born. Uh, a little little side here, um, you know, a lot of a lot of Poe is associated with Baltimore, right? And up to this point, he's never even really been to Baltimore. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it, it was an interesting thing to me to see how much of his life was actually not spent in Baltimore, um, given his strong association with that city. But anyway, in 1827, uh, he moved to Boston. He did some odd jobs and, and got a job as a clerk and newspaper writer. Um, and that was when he uh, started using the first of a number of pseudonyms that he would have, and it was Henri Le Renette. And so this is kind of the start of his working life. He essentially had three different career paths in his life. One was writing, which we see as a newspaper writer. The other was publishing, um, and the third was uh, military. After only a couple of months in Boston, Poe found himself unable to support himself, and so he enlisted in the army using another fake name, Edgar A. Perry. He also claimed that he was 22, even though he was only 18. Hmm. And he was stationed at Fort Independence in Boston. That same year, though, he released his first book. Uh, Do you happen to know the trivia of what was Poe's first publication? Ooh, I do not know. Uh, It is Tamerlane and Other Poems, a 40-page collection and he didn't put his name on it. He didn't even put a fake name on it. He just, on the byline, put by a Bostonian. Hmm. It's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't think he ever uh, gave the reason for his reticent to, reticence to use his real name um, on a number of things. Yeah, so I don't know. Hmm. Um, only 50 copies were printed. Gained very little attention from it, but it is technically his first publication, so... I've seen that trivia question in a number of places. Tamerlane and Other Poems. Tamerlane and Other Poems. Yep, in 1827. Uh, He served in in the army for a couple of years. After two years, he had uh, risen in the ranks. He became a sergeant major for artillery, which was the highest rank that a non-commissioned officer could be given, so he had no more upward mobility in the army there. And he sought to end his five-year enlistment early. So he went to his uh, commanding officer and kind of like laid everything out before him, told him his real name, told him his circumstances, told him what was going on and what he wanted. And his commanding officer was actually, from what I understand, fairly understanding. He said that he would allow Poe to be discharged if he reconciled with his foster father. Mm-hmm. Um and if he found a replacement to serve the rest of Poe's enlisted commitment. Hmm. So Poe wrote wrote a letter to John Allen. Uh, John Allen did not care. (laughs) He was unsympathetic, and he he basically just didn't write back. So Poe was kind of stuck where he was for a while. And then Frances Allen, Poe's foster mother, 
died in February of 1829. And Poe, it's it looks like Poe didn't even know that she was sick or dying in that John Allen hadn't even written to tell him that. And Poe had gone there to visit, gone to Richmond to visit, and uh, arrived the day after her burial, which is pretty tragic. So John Allen possibly uh, was feeling a little more sympathetic with, you know, the passing of his wife. Uh, he agreed to support Edgar Allan Poe's uh, attempt to be discharged. So Poe was able to be discharged in April of 1829 uh, after finding a replacement. Uh, his purpose in being discharged was so that he could uh, go to West Point and become an officer because he wanted to keep moving up. So in the interim, between being discharged from the army and going to West Point, Poe moved to Baltimore for a time to stay with his widowed aunt, Maria Clem, uh, her daughter, Virginia, and his uh, biological brother, Henry, as well as his uh, biological grandmother, Elizabeth Poe. During that time, Poe published his second book, Alaroff, Tamerlane, and Minor Poems, um, which is another, you know, another collection of poems. Mm -hmm. In 1830, he went to West Point and uh, entered as a cadet. Also during this time, John Allen married, got remarried, and over the course of the next uh, year or so, Poe and Allen continued to fight and continued to to become more contentious in their relationship poe didn't like that john allen had remarried at all of course because like you you know you're not being respectful to my mother and that mm -hmm. and also it turns out john allen had a number of children out of affairs that poe took issue with as well so uh they argued a lot and eventually um john allen disowned edgar allen poe so he was done were finished. Also during this time, Poe realized that being a, an officer was not for him. Uh, he decided that this was not the path he wanted to take, so he decided to purposely get court-martialed. Um, yeah, and on uh, February 8th, 1831, he was tried for gross neglect of duty and disobedience of orders for refusing to attend formations classes or church. So basically he just stopped doing anything uh, in order to get court-martialed and he strategically pleaded not guilty so that they would dismiss him because he knew he'd be found guilty and by trying to fight it and then being found guilty in a court-martial he would have to be dismissed so we see Edgar Allan Poe as kind of a, an impulsive man right he's a young man he's driven a lot by his desires you know he was orphaned at a young age but taken in by a wealthy family and so he, uh, he he seems to make decisions that don't necessarily take the future into account. Yeah. Um, so he is dismissed from West Point and he go moves to U New York, where he released his third volume of poems, which was simply called Poems. And that was in 1831. Um, it is dedicated to the U.S. Corps of Cadets because uh, his some of his friends at West Point pitched in you know 75 cents a piece or whatever to help raise the money to publish it and so he dedicated it to them and it included a number a number of his older longer poems like tamerlane and alaraf but also some newer poems as well after that publication he returned to baltimore to his aunt brother and cousin 
uh, that he had been living with. Uh, his older brother, Henry, had been in ill health, apparently all, uh, in part due to alcoholism, and he died in August of 1831. Edgar is in Baltimore in 1831, and having pretty much cut all ties and all possibility of being in the military, he has sort of chosen a life of financial difficulty for himself because he knows that he wants to write. So after his brother's death, he tries to take on uh, a more like purposeful uh, career path as a writer, but he was attempting to live on that alone, which was kind of hard to do at the time. Uh, there was not international copyright law, uh, so as a new writer in America, he was competing with a lot of um, British classics and the bigger names coming from Europe that American publishers could just publish whenever they wanted because they didn't have to deal with copyright law. So he was competing with a lot of that. Uh, the industry was also hurt by the Panic of 1837, which was which I briefly mentioned when talking about Tammany Hall. And this was kind of an early, the early days of American periodicals, so there wasn't a lot of like consistent support for publishing, and so so it was just kind of tough. After his first three publications of poetry, Poe decided to turn to prose, and he started with a few stories and began working on his only drama, which is called Politian. The Baltimore Saturday Visitor awarded him a prize in October of 1833 for his short story, Message Found in a Bottle. Uh, and that brought uh, attention from John Kennedy, who was a rich Baltimorean and who helped Poe get some of his stuff published and, and put into to periodicals um, like the Southern Literary Messenger of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, so Poe uh, became the assistant editor of the Southern Literary Messenger in 1835. But after only a few weeks, he was fired for being drunk on the job. So Poe went back to Baltimore. He's bouncing around a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when he went back to Baltimore, he obtained a license to marry his cousin, Virginia Clem, who he had been living with from time to time. Uh, it's unknown if they were married at that time. That was in September of 1835. He was 26 and she was 13. This is a thing that I knew about Ed Edgar Allan Poe uh, prior to this deep dive. And yeah. 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 I mean, I don't, I don't like to yuck anybody's yums, but there are lines. There are things that are over the line. Yeah, there, there is a line that can be crossed. Um, yeah. So he, he went back to the, the head editor of the Southern Literary Messenger and promised good behavior. Uh, and so he, he, uh, he was hired back. And so he moved back to Richmond and brought Virginia and her mother, which I now realize saying going back to Richmond with Virginia can be a confusing sentence. So he remained there for a couple of years until 1837, a period of good stability in his life. And while working there, he published several poems, book reviews, and critiques, and also stories in that paper. So at this point, he starts becoming a critic, which by the time he died, that was really what he was best known for. Hmm. He was best known as a, as a literary critic and reviewer. In 1836, on May 16th, 1836, he and Virginia held a formal uh, Presbyterian wedding uh, with a witness falsely attesting that Cle that uh, Virginia's age was 21. <laughs> Oops. Yep. Ugh. Feels good. So in 1838, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket was published and widely reviewed. That is 
Poe's only complete novel. And so a little bit about that story. Uh, it's, it's Arthur Gordon Pym uh, stows away on a whaling ship called the Grampus. You know, it's a sailing adventure story. He goes through shipwreck, mutiny, cam- cannibalism, you know, traveling around the world and going on adventures. Uh, some people really enjoyed it. Other people criticized it for being really derivative of other works of the type and of the time. So, you know, it, it, gave, it had mixed reviews, uh, but it is his only complete uh, novel. In 1839, he published Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque in two volumes, uh, but did not get much money from it and also had mixed reviews. In, in that same year, in 1839, he left the Southern Literary Messenger and became the assistant editor of Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Uh, and then after about a year there, he left and uh, became an assistant at Graham's Magazine. Uh, so again, we see this kind of like uh, unstable life for Poe, just constantly moving and looking for the next thing. Uh, in 1840, he published a prospectus uh, planning to start his own journal called The Stylus, uh, but it never took off. It never happened. Also at this time, he was trying to uh, secure a government position in the administration of President Tyler, trying to get, you know, one of those uh, those spoils positions, and you know, through some of his friends. Uh, but he ended up missing a meeting, probably because he was drunk, although he claimed to have been sick, uh, and so nothing panned out there. In January of 1842, Virginia showed the first signs of tuberculosis while singing and playing the piano in their home. After that episode, she only partially recovered and Poe got more heavily into drink. He left Graham's magazine and tried to find a new position somewhere, again, trying to get a government post too, but that didn't work out. Or He went back to New York, where he briefly worked for the Evening Mirror uh, before becoming editor of the Broadway Journal, and later he became its owner. During this time, Virginia was getting sicker and sicker and, and never really recovered. She just kind of kept deteriorating, and uh, Poe was having a harder time dealing with it. Through the Broadway Journal, he kind of put himself on the bad side of everyone else by publicly accusing Henry Wadsworth Longfellow of plagiarism. <laughs> um, and Classy. But yeah, Longfellow never responded, so it was just kind of like him throwing out an accusation and, and everyone being like, come on, dude. <laughs> um, in 1845... He published The Raven in the Evening Mirror, and this was like really the first big popular thing for him. It, it was immediately very popular, mm-hmm. um, and it made him a household name as a poet. You know, up to this point, he'd been a, a publicist and a, you know, a critic. However, he was only played, paid $9 for its publication. <laughs> um, the Broadway Journal failed in 1846. They moved to the Bronx into a cottage that is now known as the Edgar Allan Poe Cottage. Uh, So if you go there, that is the home that he moved into in 1846. So really, he didn't live there very long, and Virginia didn't live there very long either. Virginia died on January 30th, 1847. And much of his writing that includes themes of death of a beautiful woman probably has to do with the death of Virginia. Yeah. You know, she, she died, and obviously she was much younger than him and a family member feels really icky in a lot of ways not that this is redeeming of that but by all accounts they really did love each other and were Mm -hmm. like very happy and committed in their marriage that's probably gonna happen when you marry a 13 year old 
because they're very impressionable and yeah. that's still icky and gross but you know there were there were no no real suggestions of impropriety uh yeah. save i guess i mean i guess a happy incestuous marriage to a child is better than a you know, right i again i'm not i'm not justifying not trying to say oh it was okay because not any of yeah. that yeah but, but at least it, it, it could be worse yeah she, yeah she she was very happy with him and looked up to him and he you know very much loved her and all of that um yeah there was one uh incident or i guess like scandal where there was another poet named elizabeth ellett who became like infatuated with with poe and became very jealous of his not only his relationship obviously with his wife but also with uh, another poet named francis osgood who was very good friends with edgar Allan poe so he's he's friends with this with uh francis osgood he also met another woman named sarah whitman like they were they became friends and elizabeth ellett became jealous of of these friendships that that poe had with other people and basically just started rumors and uh, suggested that there were indiscretions on Poe's part with other women and all that, just trying to trying to stir up trouble and I guess potentially make a make a, a path for her to get into his good graces or whatever. But really, the only thing that came of it is that Francis Osgood's husband threatened to sue Ellet, <laughs> and so she retracted all of her statements and and gave an apology. Little aside there. All right, so. Um, Virginia dies in, in January of 1847, and I mentioned Sarah Helen Whitman, a woman that he met um, a few years prior. He kind of attempted to court her, but didn't really work out because he was becoming more of an alcoholic and more erratic in his behavior and that sort of thing. So then Poe returned to Richmond and uh, got back together with his childhood sweetheart, Sarah Royster, who was at this point widowed. But that didn't last terribly long because on October 3rd, 1849... Uh, Poe was found delirious in the streets of Baltimore, uh, needing immediate assistance, and he died on Sunday, October 7th, 1849. Hmm. He was not coherent enough to explain how he was found in this state and what was wrong. He is reported to have repeatedly called out the name Reynolds on the night before his death, though no one knows what he, who he was referring to. And some people claim that his final words were, Lord help my poor soul although hmm. all records of his death, including his death certificate, have been lost. Yeah, there, there are a lot of there's speculation as to what it could have been. Heart disease, epilepsy, syphilis, cholera, rabies, who knows. Yep, hmm. that, was, yeah. that was it. He died. And immediately after his death, one of his literary rivals, Rufus Griswold, wrote a very slanted uh, obituary under a pseudonym, which painted uh, Poe as, you know, a madman walking the streets in madness or melancholy with lips moving in indistinct curses or with eyes upturned in passionate prayers. So that kind of painted the public perception of Poe pretty quickly after that. Um, he, he signed it Ludwig and published it in the New York Tribune on the day that Poe was buried. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then he went on to write a biography like a, a longer biographical article about poe which again was like really just mean <laughs> and and not totally accurate about you know trying to depict him as a drunken drug-addled madman 
but really most of his claims have been disputed up to this you know at this point in history we know that the most of that was made up and one more thing that griswold did he convinced poe's mother-in-law to sign away the rights to all of poe's works right after poe's death uh and so griswold published the collected works which to me is like if you hate this guy so much why not just get rid of him he published poe's collected works and added his own biography into that publication i guess to i don't know i don't <laughs> i don't get it but maybe to tarnish the memory well you know keep the memory alive but also tarnish it i guess yeah. i don't know yeah so that's that's poe's life um so his his the his works are best known as gothic right in the gothic style yeah. dealing with things uh like you know death darkness uh romanticism that kind of thing uh he was opposed to transcendentalism he referred to the followers of transcendentalism as frog pondians and hmm. said that their work was their writings were metaphor run mad and lapsing into obscurity for obscurity's sake which he did not appreciate he also uh you know through his literary critique and everything he disliked didactism which is the instructional art or or art that is meant to be appreciated both artistically and as a way of like educating the audience he did not like that and he didn't really care for allegory either so his his works were meant to you know have the meaning just below the surface mm -hmm. but not meant to like you know be particularly metaphorical or anything like that uh he had huge influence particularly with a couple of the works that i'm going to uh, talk about a little bit he also wrote some things on physics and cosmology although he did not use the scientific method in any of his scientific thoughts mm -hmm. so it was all just kind of intuitive reasoning which at this point uh like his writing uh eureka uh has been found to be like just not true because mm -hmm. he was just kind of pondering when he came up yep. with it and he was also very interested in cryptography which uh has influenced a number of of american writers since then uh so i mentioned uh, a few works like his first work you know Tamerlane and other poems I mentioned the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket because that's his only completed novel uh, and then there are two works that came up in the clues in Jeopardy this week one was Murders in the Rue Morgue and one was The Raven so I'm going to talk a little bit about those works right now because those are also important and seminal so the Murders in the Rue Morgue uh, is a short story uh, published in Graham's Magazine in 1841, and it has been described by many as the first modern detective story. And actually, the word detective did not really exist at that point, so Poe did not call it that. It's, you know, looking back, we say, oh, it's one of the first detective stories. Uh, the main character is, well, I shouldn't say the main character. There are two main characters. C. Auguste Dupin is a man in Paris who solves the murder. Uh, the murders of the Rue Morgue. And the narrator is his friend, whose name I don't believe we get. It's just the narrator uh, telling the story of Dupin figuring this out, which uh, we can see a clear parallel in Sherlock Holmes, right? Watson is the narrator, uh, mm -hmm. the good friend of Sherlock Holmes, who is the one who actually does the solving of mysteries. Uh, and Dupin shows up 
in a couple of other stories later on in Poe's oeuvre, um, the mystery of Marie Roger and the Purloined Letter, which is one of the more uh, better known works mm-hmm. of Poe. Yeah. So just quick, like quick little synopsis of the plot, Murders in the Rue Morgue. So depend on the narrator meet in an old mansion. There's a there's a backstory hinted at where they're both kind of just like seeking to leave their past uh, behind, but there's not much more than that, uh, which really fits into the gothic ideal. Depend on the narrator, read uh, newspaper accounts of a baffling double murder. Madame Lespanet, I'm really bad at French, <laughs> and her daughter have been found dead in their home in the Rue Morgue, which is a fictional street in Paris. Uh, there are a number of like clues that are found. The mother was found in the yard behind the house, broken bones, and her throat was cut. The daughter was found strangled to death upside down in the ch- and stuffed into the chimney. So pretty grisly and gruesome. The murders occurred in a fourth floor room that was locked from the inside. And there are tufts of hair that don't appear to um, belong to humans and some gold coins. Or witnesses heard two voices at the time of the murder one male in French but disagreed on the language spoken by the other and so uh, there's a lot of like question and uh, a bunch of red herrings in there as well police assume that you know the murder couldn't have happened they couldn't have killed them in the room and then left because it's a locked room the windows are closed and everything but Dupin takes an interest and begins looking into things um, and through his deduction he figures out that the murders were committed by an orangutan. He figures out through reading the newspaper articles, also reading, you know, uh, published works about animals in the world and things in other places. So again, we're, we're getting hints of Sherlock Holmes and the encyclopedias and everything that he keeps on his shelves. And so he determines that an orangutan killed the women and he places a, or an advertisement in the local newspaper asking if anyone has lost such an animal and would be willing to pay a reward to get it back. And soon a sailor shows up, who they had already, Dupin had already determined that it was a sailor based on certain clues. Shows up, offers to pay the reward, uh, but Dupin, you know, demands that he tell him the circumstances of the murder. So uh, the sailor confesses, essentially. And the person who had been wrongly uh, arrested uh, is released from custody, and uh, things work out and that's the end uh so you know it's a bizarre murder with strange circumstances and we see this uh person who is not a policeman come in and you know through deductive reasoning figure it out and so that's the murders in the rue morgue and it like i said it is widely considered one of the first detective stories Mm -hmm. uh the other work that was mentioned is the raven very important piece like like i said it was the work that um gave him kind of national renown as a poet and as a writer and it was first published in 1845 and it tells of a talking raven's mysterious visit to a distraught lover tracing the man's slow fall into madness right and i'm not going to read the whole thing it's actually a very long poem Mm -hmm. which i discovered in eighth grade english class we were told to pick a poem and memorize it and i was like i've heard of that i'll go ahead and pick the raven and then i got it and i like printed it out and it was very long and my teacher was like, you can do the first stanza. I was like, okay, thank you. Oh. Should have gone with William Carlos Williams, this is just to say. 
Yeah, I don't know that I should have. <laughs> All right, no, 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 the raven is a much better choice. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it follows an unnamed narrator. Uh, the first line, which uh, was a question when I was on the show, or the fir- uh, the first five words are "Once upon a midnight dreary." So the first uh, the the first stanza just to get an idea of like the meter and the rhyme scheme and everything is once upon a midnight dreary while i pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore while i nodded nearly napping suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping rapping at my chamber door tis some visitor i muttered tapping at my chamber door only this and nothing more so that the whole poem follows that kind of almost musical flow um and that Mm -hmm. that um that rhyme scheme and, and meter so when he opens the door nothing's there uh, but it excites his soul to burning closes the door the tapping is repeated but he realizes it's coming from a window not the door Uh, so he opens it and a raven flies in paying no attention he uh, goes and perches on a bust of Pallas which is another name the epithet for Athena so going into again the gothic kind of setting there's this there's this bust of this you know ancient goddess in this guy's room as he's just lamenting so the bird the only thing the bird says is nevermore and so he asks after the bird's name and it says nevermore and he keeps asking him questions and the bird keeps responding nevermore and eventually uh, he sits there in silence for a minute mind wanders back to his lost love named Lenore and he just kind of like slowly goes crazy uh, he gets angry at the bird. He starts imagining demons and angels and around him and commands the bird to leave and go back to the underworld. And the narrator's final admission is that his soul is trapped beneath the raven's shadow and shall be lifted nevermore. So the poem ends with the bird still sitting there on the bust of Pallas and the narrator saying that he is trapped hmm. underneath the raven's shadow. So yeah, there's Edgar yeah. Allan Poe. And I talked about that for yeah. a long time. And, and he has a bunch of other works, obviously. Mm-hmm. Cask yeah. of Amanantiado and Mask of the Red Death, Follow the House of Usher, a whole bunch of other stuff that is important uh-huh. literary. But the the ones that I mentioned are a bit more trivia adjacent. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Telltale Heart comes Right, Telltale mind. Heart. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that too. Lots of poems. Anyway, that brings us to the quiz. All right, here we go. So the quiz is... The, the, the title of it is Murders, Rue, Morgue, Raven, Poe. And we're going to go through in that order. So, okay. question number one. Elizabeth Short was brutally murdered in January of 1947, and her bisected body left in the Limert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. The bar- bizarre circumstances and unsolved nature of this cape, case has kept it in the American imagination uh, ever since. What did Short come to be called? Also, what did the case come to be called? It's the same name. And this name mm-hmm. is thought to be a reference to a film noir title from the previous year. I know this one. I don't know when I learned this one, um, but it seems to come up a lot. Uh, that is The Black Dahlia. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, The Black Dahlia, which is uh, just what the, the people in the neighborhood came to refer to her as as this you know investigation continued uh and everything it is thought to have originated with the title of the blue dahlia which was a 1946 crime film noir 
So, yeah, good job. Thanks. Ten points. Ooh. Question two. The word rue can have a number of different meanings in different languages. We can rue the day that something happens, as in regretting or, mm-hmm. or being mournful of. It, as we see in Murders in the Rue Morgue, it's also a word for, you know, street uh, mm-hmm. in French. Perhaps not the second meaning, but the first meaning led author Suzanne Collins to name a character Rue in her famous trilogy. What is the name of that trilogy, which is also the name of the first book in the trilogy, which features the character Rue, who dies a tragic death and becomes something of an uh, inspiration for the main character to bring down the whole system? Uh, That's the Hunger Games. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is the Hunger Games. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Suzanne Collins is, of course... She, she was not shy about naming characters certain things based on how they fit into her story. <laughs> um, so, yeah, good job. Thanks. I did, back when the Hunger Games movies were coming out, I did like a Palm Sunday sermon that touched on the Hunger Games. Anyway. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I got to bring in those youngins. Got to make, yeah. make it relevant. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're at 20 points. You're two for two. Question number three. A person who examines bodies and works in a morgue is known as a coroner. The term and position came about uh, in late medieval England. Similar to what we call it now, what was the original word for this job? It's only a few letters different, and it showed that these people worked on behalf of the king's interest. It's similar to the word coroner. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. Original original word for the occupation coroner. Mm-hmm. Only a few letters different and showed they worked on behalf of the king's interest. Is that right? Yep. And it's a, did I understand that it's like an archaic word that's not used anymore? Or was that... Yeah, we, we don't call them this anymore. Nothing's coming to me. Um... I'm going to guess coronary, but I don't think that's correct. Okay. Uh, it is a crowner. Oh, okay. Because they are representatives of the crown. Got it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which now makes the, the word coroner make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Because, like, that that prefix has nothing to do with death, you know, or, like, bodies. But for, you know, the Latin root of crown... Yeah. Makes more sense. Yeah, sure does. That was interesting. I came across that and was like, huh. All right. Number four. Ravens feature significantly in many mythologies throughout the world. The ancient Chinese believed that they brought bad weather. Certain Native American traditions saw it as a trickster who played a role in creation. What two European gods of different pantheons each had a pair of pet ravens? One named them Phobos and Demos, which mean fear and terror, and the other named them Hugin and Munin, which mean thought and memory. So I'm looking for two answers, five points each. Alright, so I remember that there is a god with a pair of ravens in Norse mythology, and I am not totally confident about which one it is, but I think it's Odin. I'm going to go with Odin for one. Uh, The other, I didn't know how to pair of ravens ravens but i know that phobos and demas are the moons of 
Mars, so I'm going to say Mars. And you're 100% correct. Yeah. Woo uh, Phobos and Nemos are, are Greek, and so those names go with uh, Ares, but Mars right. and Ares are the same yeah. god. So you're you're All right. right. Th- like, thanks yeah. for your flexibility. On no, you're that. you're 100 yeah. right. Like, and the moons are called Phobos and Deimos, and the planet is called Mars. So uh, yeah. yeah, I yeah. I it had registered to me before that those were Greek Greek moon names and a Latin planet name, and I forgot to forgot to reassess. It's, I think I, yeah. I don't. I personally don't care because they're the same exact thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Ares had his two pet. Uh, ravens and odin also had his two pet ravens so good job thanks all right that brings us to number five so in recent popular culture particularly a movie that has come out in the last month an on-screen bromance has left many younger viewers desiring a more meaningful intimate relationship between two characters who are these two characters one who is quote a hell of a pilot and the other who is quote a traitor all right I got it. Um, so as I was trying to remember the uh, the five words that were the the sequence of the quiz, um, and I uh, I sort of tuned out for a second and missed, sure. missed the beginning of the question. <laughs> um, but remembering that this question is Poe, um, and thinking about recent movies, um, I assume we're talking about the most recent Star Wars trilogy, and we're talking about Poe and. I believe his name is Finn. That is correct. Yes. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of people, and I said younger viewers because really it's mostly among like millennials and younger who are you know shipping Finpo who are yep. saying like yeah that's what they want to yeah. see. Please don't email us fan fiction though. <laughs> don't do that. And I'm not saying that in a sarcastic way. I'm saying that in a hundred percent serious way. I do not do not want to read that. Um, but yeah. Yeah, Finn and Poe. Nice job. All right. Thanks. So you have 40 points going into the final. Uh, all right. Let's see. I think you finished with 65 last time. Is that right? Sure. That sounds right. Okay. All right. I'm going to wager 26 points. All right. Oh, yeah. Get up there. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, there is more than one possible correct answer to this question. A group of crows is called a murder. However, a group of ravens is known by another name, or one of a few other names. They're not quite so macabre, but they're still not nice, and perhaps a bit secretive. Give me any of those words that mean a group of ravens. I... I've got a word coming to mind, and I don't know if it's correct, but I don't know. When something bubbles up, you kind of have to go with it. Um, I'm going to say a conspiracy of ravens. And that is correct, yes. Woo-hoo! <laughs> yeah, the other, the other one that's more common, I mean, I'm sure you could call them anything like a flock or whatever, but for <laughs> ravens specifically, it's either conspiracy or an unkindness. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah. Well, there you go. Look at that. 66 points. All right. Coming Is that the highest strong. score we've had so it, far? It, it might not be. It might be. I don't know. We'd have to listen back. I keep saying we're going to keep track of that, and then I don't. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Great Good job. Quiz. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to have spent time looking at something that was not war adjacent, you know, because I realized yeah. I, I, I've been doing that a lot for our dives, so I, I'm, yeah. I wanted to get in a little something 
something different. Yeah. Well, I'm terrible on military history, so uh, dives on war-adjacent things are, you know... uh, (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) It's helping me. Sure. Um, But I I hear you on wanting to branch out. Yeah, that that was fun. I was like trying to think what you could possibly be getting ready to add. As we were still on the Edgar Allan Poe deep dive, I was thinking like, what's the quiz going to be on? And please don't let it be five questions about the Baltimore Ravens. Um. (laughs) I purposely avoided that. I was like, um, I could, I could really do that. But no, I did. I I kept away from the Baltimore Ravens. All right. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I know they existed. That's about it. They were in the Super Bowl. Yes. Thanks to, uh, thanks to our recent Learned League question, right? Yep. And Beyonce performed, mm-hmm. and uh, and they blew the electricity, right? They, there was, like, a blackout. Yes. Uh, I remember that, because I was watching that. Yep. Um, all yep. right. It was the Harbowl. Yeah. Yep. They're in the playoffs right now, too. Actually, oh, I think they goodness. have the best record in uh, the AFC going into the playoffs. They're playing, oh, playing on Sunday. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, that's our podcast. Thanks for spending your time with us. We are... Uh, planning, hoping, assuming everything comes together, um, to have our greatest of all time tournament bonus episode be our first our first content that is available to our uh, Patreon patrons. So assuming that we are able to successfully launch our Patreon, get through all of their review process stuff, it will be on there. Um, don't plan to make any big Jeopardy money, I'm assuming, but uh, we are, <laughs> we're sure hoping to um, to offset some of the costs associated with this podcast and be able to um, maybe bring, you know, bring in a few uh, upgrades to how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, follow our social media to find out how you can be part of that. Yeah. Speaking of the social media, you can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Uh, you can also email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. Yep, so be sure to tell your friends, uh, leave us a review, go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Uh, that really helps us out with our numbers and helps get the algorithm pushing us out there for more listeners. And uh, regardless of when that uh, greatest of all time tournament wraps up um, and that bonus content comes back, comes out uh we'll definitely be back with you next week to talk about uh the upcoming week of regular season jeopardy um and until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker